from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today we're talking about measuring wildlife, but at two very different scales. Our first guest uses microscopes to measure insect stingers, and our second guest uses satellites to measure mountain lion populations. How will they measure up to one another? We'll find out. The entomologist and the landscape ecologist. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking to two scientists who measure wildlife, but on very different scales and with very different tools. Joining us today in studio is Emily Sadler, an entomologist whose recent paper in the environmental sciences journal Peer J evaluated the relationship of the size of an insect stinger and the pain it inflicts. She's spoken at conferences with presentation titles like A Million Little Brown Wasps, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and my favorite, The Black-Headed Conundrum. Also with us today in studio is David Stoner, whose paper on using satellite images to estimate deer and mountain lion populations was recently published in the journal Global Change Biology, and who is one of the few people you will ever meet who knows what it's like to hug a live mountain lion. First up today, the entomologist. Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. seems more intense. That's the trailer from the latest of what seems to be an endless series of Marvel movies, The Ant-Man and the Wasp. Our next guest's work centers on real ants and real wasps, and her latest paper packs a punch. In it, she measured the length of insect stingers and looked at the relationship of those stingers to pain and toxicity, but Emily Sadler, I know you're just dying to correct me here because I'm saying this wrong, right? Those stingers we call stingers are actually stings. Mm -hmm. Why does everybody say it wrong? I I think it's just something that's caught on. It's just easier for people to say and it's caught on and and even entomologists say stinger. So it's okay. I'm not going to get mad at you if you say it. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. So I, I think of stingers, excuse me, stings as little needles on the butts of bugs, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Can you take us through a little sting 101? What are these things really? Sure. There are specific structures in some ants, bees, and wasps. Not all of them sting, but a group of them do. And it's actually a modified egg-laying device. So only females sting, which a lot of people don't realize. And then it's been modified in these groups to deliver venom, um, basically. And so they can paralyze hosts or they can use it as defense. And then there's a whole whole lot going on that you don't see on the inside. There's some hardened structures that help guide it. And then there's the venom glands as well. And we typically, I think, tend to think of these things as bees, perhaps because those are the things that most of us are most familiar with and step on, unfortunately, right. the most on our bare feet. But these things belong, you said, to ants, bees, and wasps. Ants yes. have stingers too. Yes. And they use them. Yes. And they hurt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you, do you, I got to ask you, do you know this all from personal experience? Um, I have been stung by wasps, um, not any ants and some bees. Yeah. Okay. What was the worst for you? Um, actually, a velvet ant was uh, the worst. Okay. And velvet ants are a specific kind of ant. These are the ones with stingers, obviously. So velvet ants are a misnomer. They're actually wasps that don't have wings. Um, and so they look like ants, but they're not really ants. And are they velvety? Uh, yes, so they do. a lot of them have like velvety hair, so they have a, a whole lot of luscious locks, kind of, and and they have a lot of coloration, and they're really pretty. So they're interesting to a lot of people, but people shouldn't go around picking them up. They actually have a nasty sting. Because even though they're velvety, you shouldn't 
pet them. Right. That, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. They look like teddy bears, but they're not. So you noticed that there was a lack of information about how long these yeah. creature stings were. What made you cue into that? The lab that I work in, we specialize on stinging wasps. And the two that we look at are velvet ants and spider wasps. And they're two of the most painful stings. And so, you know, we're out there in the field and we handle these wasps and we know (laughs) to avoid uh, because they are very painful. And we know a lot about the chemical composition and we know some about the pain, but people have never just really took in measurements. And so it's like, that's really easy. We have this awesome collection on campus at Utah State, and we can just go through, pull these dead ones, dissect them, take out the sting and measure them. And then we actually have this data that no one's really ever looked at before. Okay. So how do you go about that process though? How do you go about measuring a sting? Because I gather some of these are really small. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them are very, very small. Um, And so under a microscope, you do a dissection and very carefully. And then we take pictures, and then we do the measurements on the pictures. Do you measure from the point that the sting leaves the body, or do you? Because I I assume sometimes they they start inside the body. Yes, we had to come up with a kind of a, a regulated way that we measured every single one the same. We had to start from a triangular plate, which is this very like end structure, and then we measured the lancet, so the thing that's actually stinging you, and we traced it all the way to the end. And you're doing this under a microscope, right? The yes. dissection? That's yes. got to be really hard. It, it can be very, very hard. <laughs> Is it just like a practice makes perfect yes. thing? Or are yeah. there people who are better at that than others? Yes. Um, I The reason that I was okay doing it is... For the groups that I specialize in, I actually have to dissect the genitalia out to be able to identify the species. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Hold on. You dissect the genitalia out? Yes, yes. It's one of the best diagnostic features we have. The ones that I work on are nocturnal. They all look brown. They all look the same. They're all about the same size, and they're found in the same area. To be able to tell the difference, I have to look at internal structures, and male genitalia is literally the best way we have right now. So I got to figure like you have to have a really steady hand at this. I drink way yes. too much coffee. <laughs> that probably keeps me out of the mix for doing this kind yes, of work. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm looking at this chart of terror that mm-hmm. you have created, <laughs> and there are a lot of stings out there that are about a millimeter or two. Mm-hmm. Some are four or five millimeters, but there's also one that is 14 <laughs> millimeters long. That's a half inch yes. long stinger. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So that belongs to Pepsis, which is a very big spider wasp, and they are the most painful on the pain scale. You decided to chart these sting lengths against toxicity and also something called the Schmidt Pain Index, which is the coolest thing in the world. Can you explain the Schmidt Index and, of course, where it came from? Sure. Um, There's an entomologist, Justin Schmidt. He's been stung by lots and lots of these things, and he decided to kind of categorize the pain. So he has a scale. It's one to four, uh, one being the least painful and four being the most painful. So two is about a honeybee and four the spider wasps that you just mentioned. He tried to categorize these things so that they could be talked about more easily. I mean, most people don't want to go around getting stung themselves, and so they'll trust him on what, what he felt. And he does this intentionally. Yes. Yeah, it's not like, oh, I accidentally got stung. Now I'm going to describe it. Yes. I'm hoping that's how it began. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he's an interesting entomologist. He's a great researcher. Um, If you've read the pain scale, it's very entertaining. He talks about some stings being fruity and effervescent. It's like he's describing a fine wine. Yes. (laughs) 
Maybe not surprisingly, you found something of a correlation between sting length and pain. The bigger the sting, the more the pain. But you mm-hmm. also found a negative correlation. Can you talk yes. about that? Yeah, it was something we weren't expecting to see. Um, I mean, it's not surprising that, you know, as as the insects get bigger physically, that the sting gets bigger as well. And, and I would expect it to be more painful. What we didn't expect to see was this correlation between toxicity and the length. Insects that have these shorter stings tend to have more toxic venom. It was really interesting and unexpected. But when we look at why this could be is we see that a lot of the insects that have the shorter stings are social. So they have a lot to defend. They have their hive to defend. And so that toxicity, although unexpected, I I think it makes sense. This is a pretty fun study. (laughs) Yeah. I like this a lot. But there's a serious side to it too, right? Where does this, where is this going? Well, I mean, I think one of the greatest thing we get out of studies on like the Schmidt pain index or even this one is that we get it open to a more general audience, uh, more scientists and even the general public. Wasps don't have a good public view. <laughs> a no, lot they of... don't. I hate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when I say wasps, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind typically is a yellow jacket or a paper wasp. That's sad because there's thousands of different kinds of wasps. Not all of them sting and they do so many good things for us. And so just being able to have these types of research articles out there that people can look at and learn, oh, there's more than just that one. I mean, there's 150,000 described species of ants, bees, and wasps, and people know about three of them. I had an entomology professor once who said that if you want to name an organism, you become an entomologist. Oh, yes. (laughs) You've been part of teams that have described new species in the literature. What's that like? Um, It's fun. I I think it's great. Like, I get nervous. I'm like, oh, this this can't be new. Like, someone surely has looked at this before. Um, But you look at them and you're like, no, this this is really different. And it's a fun thing. I mean, usually you try and name them something appropriate that, you know, makes sense and that other scientists can use. But a lot of times names have been used up. I mean, there's 150,000 already named. So you can get to have some fun with it. You know, there's one we're going to publish about and it has a mustache kind of. It's got this hair. And so we're going to name it after Groucho Marx. (laughs) You're going to name an insect after Groucho Marx? Yes. Yeah. This is fantastic. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm just saying like an insect like named like undisciplined yeah. would be <laughs> I'll keep that. I'll keep that on the side. <laughs> the That's Emily Sadler, whose recent study in Pure J demonstrated that bigger stings hurt more, but smaller ones are more toxic. Emily, can you stick around to chat with our next guest of toward course. the end of the show? Awesome. Next up, the landscape ecologist. What you're listening to now is the telemetry signal from Sputnik, which was launched into an elliptical low-Earth orbit by the Soviet Union more than 60 years ago, surprising the world and sparking the space race. Little could anyone have imagined then all of the things that we use satellites for today, from television to telephones and from space science to spycraft, and even for counting animals. Our next guest's latest study in the journal Global Change Biology takes advantage of satellites in a rather novel way. By combining NASA satellite imagery with wildlife surveys, he and his team modeled the effects of plant productivity on populations of mule deer and mountain lions. David Stoner, as good as satellite imagery has gotten in recent years, you still can't generally see individual animals on it, but you and your group thought up 
another way to go about using images to count animals. Can you take us through that? One of the major misunderstandings when we talk about counting animals with satellite imagery is that people think we can actually see them in the imagery. And that actually, there are people doing that in certain systems. This is not one of them. We're monitoring the habitat of these animals with satellite imagery. And we are able to measure the growing season of plants throughout the year in the same way you might think of a cartoon, a stick figure running. We have a freeze frame. And when played in motion, you can actually see how plants grow through the seasons. And that gives us a real sense of the rhythms of the system. Herbivores feed on plants, so we expect that their abundance is going to be tied to the amount of plant matter that's available to them. And then when we move up a trophic level, we expect that the carnivores, the animals that eat the herbivores, are going to be tied to the abundance of their main food resource. So what we've done is we've taken counts that are conducted by the state wildlife agencies of these animals in different systems, from deserts all the way up to our more productive mountain systems, and overlaid those on the satellite imagery. And what we found is that animals in more productive environments use less space. They have a smaller home range, which is the term we use, uh, the total area that they might use over the course of a, a season. And that as food abundance declines, those home ranges get larger. And we can use that as an index of the total density of animals. And you, when you plot this, there's a really, there's a tight correlation. Yeah. In fact, I, I tell my colleagues I fell out of my chair when I first graphed these variables because I've never had our square values that high. We, we still were limited by sample size and, and we're limited by errors in the data. And we got these really clean signals. It, it tells us that the system is really strongly limited by, by climate, ultimately. I gather that one of the reasons you went looking for a new way to estimate animal populations is that the ways we used to analyze landscapes, they don't work quite the same way in a world of rapid environmental change. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, you really hit it on the head. We're seeing unprecedented growth and land use change in the West particularly. Utah and its neighbors are the fastest growing states in the country. And with that comes land use change. When habitat is in good condition, managing wildlife is easy. When it's fragmented and degraded, management becomes tremendously more complex and more expensive. And so it's not that our historic methods are inadequate. It's simply that we cannot use them at the scales that are appropriate. The expectations of society are increasing. So we need an, a means of monitoring habitat changes. What the satellite imagery allows us to do is exactly that monitor large landscapes in a very efficient and cheap manner and then fill in the gaps with the field data that we have available. So we're going to be able to use this moving forward, but we could probably use this moving backward too, right? Can you apply this model to old global archives of satellite data? Yeah. In fact, uh, my colleague on this project, Joe Sexton, has just published a paper looking at global forest cover as of 1975. So that's 40-some years ago, and it gives us a baseline to estimate against. So we, we've got a satellite record that goes back, but we can uh, make these measurements and then look at measure changes since then, and there, thereby measure the rate of change over time. Given the tightness of the square that you've seen, can this work the other way around too? If I've got an old field estimate of mountain lion or mule deer numbers from 50 years ago, could I use that to estimate the way the vegetation was back then? 
Well, in science, we're very conservative. I, I would be reluctant to do that, but it, it is informative. And we know, we know when we look at other records, say uh, the journals of the pioneers and the early explorers in this area, that the wildlife communities have changed. And those changes have been largely an artifact of the plant communities that have changed. You know, the Great Basin, Colorado Plateau were once grasslands. And with the advent of livestock, uh, we've seen those grasslands shift to more shrublands, and shrublands support mule deer better than other species. So there's no question that the plant communities influence the, the wildlife communities as a whole. Um, I'm not sure how far I would go with that in terms of uh, inferring effect from cause. When you saw this, you said you almost fell off of your chair. When that happens, when that experience happens... I'm sure your mind just starts racing a mile a minute. Where else can we go from here? What else can we use this on? So what are the next steps in this research? I did a paper before this one where we looked at the birthing times of mule deer as a function of plant phenology. And what we found was that mule deer crops, the the reproductive cohort varies tremendously in space and time. And as we look at systems where plants are driven by monsoonal moisture, summer rainstorms, as opposed to melting snowpack, uh, we see really strong climatic signals in the number of deer that are produced. And what's important here is uh, mule deer and mountain lions are not chosen haphazardly. These are species that are important to society for several reasons. One of the lines of investigation we would like to pursue is to look at rates of depredation or, say, uh, conflicts with livestock as a function of the size of the mule deer cohort in any given year. So the, the working hypothesis would be that in drought years, the fawn crop is smaller because does don't have enough food to produce milk. Fawn survival goes down. And so mountain lions, which are long-lived animals, have to turn to other food resources. And so we think this could be predictive for livestock-wildlife conflicts. You've been studying mountain lions for a long time. What are some of the mysteries that you'd still like to uncover? Well, fragmentation is one of the reigning themes in, in wildlife conservation. It's the reigning concern of our time, I'd say. And one of the things that we assume is that animals are constrained by that. And it, it is true for many species, but we put a radio collar on a young female. We monitored for several months and then she vanished. And we thought, well, she'll turn up in the winter. She did turn up the next winter in Colorado. And because she was wearing a GPS collar that tracked all of her movements, we were able to examine the routes that she took. And so while we consider fragmentation a major problem, her way of getting around Salt Lake City was to circumnavigate the entire Wasatch Front, uh, went over several freeways and large agricultural areas and, and a number of things that we had historically thought would be impediments to movement. I'd like to see more of how these populations are actually interconnected with one another. That's David Stoner, whose study on the interconnectedness of mountain lions, mule deer, and vegetation is in the latest edition of the journal Global Change Biology. David, can you stick around to chat about something that may or may not have to do with mountain lions? Yes, I'd be happy to. Well, in that case, David, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce you to entomologist Emily Sadler. And Emily, this is David Stoner. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, Emily. How are you? Good. Uh, I'd like to start, as I usually do, by asking if either of you saw any connections between the work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I definitely saw some Um I mean, like we were talking about before with wasps, they generally have a negative, you know, public opinion of them. 
But when we talk about them, in order to get people more interested in them, we talk about the abundance. They're really important to the ecosystems that they're in. And we do abundance studies as well. Um, they're very difficult, and they're obviously on the opposite end of the scale <laughs> from yours. We, we struggle a lot, and it's because they're so small and we can't track them, I guess, is, is one of the biggest problems. Um, so you work with larger animals that you can put GPS collars on, right? But we, we struggle to do that in entomology just because they get minute and so I don't have you ever worked on a scale that was much smaller than you know mountain lions well, a lot of my early work was on birds and so I, I fully appreciate the, <laughs> the the limitations of the the animals morphology and and it's funny because that is a, a certainly a privilege we have I somewhat keep track of methods that are developed for smaller animals and how to mark them and, and how to how to track them I think at the core of many wildlife studies, in, including invertebrates, is uh, how abundance fluctuates through time and across space, and, and what does it mean for us as a society? Yeah. How do we conserve things also that play a very important ecological role, but that are perhaps not appreciated by society? Is the technology getting closer to the point that we could start tracking smaller creatures, I mean, even smaller than birds, insects, with maybe not GPS data, but some kind of transmitter? Yes. And and bee studies have, have done a number of things um, where they can track individuals. The problem with the groups that I work on is the females don't have wings, and so they look like ants. They scurry around on the ground. They also don't like when large people are looming over them, and so they don't behave the same. If you manage to pick them up, you know, and you could maybe put something on them, that's great. But then as soon as you put them back, they just burrow into the ground. Um, and a lot of them spend most of their life underground. And so in order to be able to track them, it becomes a lot harder. The groups that I work on, we track the males. The males have wings. We do, I call it shake and bake. You basically take um, a Ziploc bag and you put UV fluorescent powder in there. And then you can coat them in the powder, um, release them. And then if you recatch them and shine a UV light on them, you can see if you're catching the same male. You can get an estimate that way. But as far as actually tracking them, we haven't gotten there yet, I don't think. But I mean, maybe you know more than I do. No, I, I can say that the GPS units are getting smaller and they're being applied to smaller and smaller birds, but that's still an order of magnitude bigger than bees and wasps. But um, it is interesting that as we start to mark animals of various sizes and in different life histories, uh, the more information we get in terms of what they're doing that was beyond our ability to observe before. Our uh, planet is really interconnected by, by some of these animal movements, and, and even the smallest of animals. David mentioned a, uh, the experience of seeing this cougar that had been released near the Salt Lake Valley pop-up in Colorado. And I took that was a, a pretty big surprise. Have you had observations like that that have just floored you, the, the capacity and the extent of your, the insects that you study? Yeah, a little bit. Um, when we, we've marked males, we mark them different colors each time we go out. So sometimes you'll recapture, you know, the ones that you marked, but then months later you can get ones that are a different color from months before and you thought they just weren't going to come back. I mean, that kind of confuses your data a little bit, but it also, they're traveling pretty far and coming back and getting estimates for exactly how far they can go is really, really hard. 
we know that they can do a lot and go far, but exactly how far is the key, we're not quite sure yet. What both of you do is about measurement. I think there's this romantic view of people who study animals, this idea that you're out in the savanna or you're at the North Pole or you're down in the dirt with a field notebook in hand just observing. And I know there is some of that. There might even be a lot of that. But there's a lot of counting and categorizing, too. When you explain to people what you do, do they get disappointed about that part? Or when you think about the scientist that you thought you were going to grow up to be, did, did you realize that you're going to spend a lot of time with you know, calculators and computers? Yeah, I didn't think I would, you know, spend months under a microscope dissecting these things and then spend months looking at all the photos and measuring every single one. But I think it's an important thing. I mean, it's such a simple thing too, right, to make measurements, but it tells us so much. And then we can come back to that data later and see if things have changed. And so I think even if it's maybe not the most glamorous thing, it's hugely informative right now and in the future. So I think it's something that needs to be done. Yeah, I, I would agree. A lot of science is based on measurements. It's, it's viewed as an objective means of evaluating arguments. And without it, we're left with opinions or hunches or expert, expert knowledge. And, and these things all have a place, but we need a baseline. We need a common language, and, and the numbers really are that. Unfortunately, for many species, getting accurate counts or uh, keeping our surveys precise are extremely difficult. And so a lot of our numbers are they're biased by various constraints, whether that's monetary or logistic. We're limited in terms of where those numbers take us. And that's, I mean, my work really, it's all about numbers, even though the animal behavior is far more interesting. I'm ultimately funded to come up with means of estimating abundance. My work is really just bringing another, another yardstick into the, the, the realm. And unfortunately, my work is to tell you guys that we are running out of time. David Stoner, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. It's been my pleasure. And Emily Sadler, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>